push resume share maybe for me? Oh yeah, it says got it about recording. Okay, I'll push resume share so my PowerPoint is up. Is it up for you guys? Can you see it? Yes. 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 Fabulous. Okay, now I just need to get over here where I can push the button. I'm very sorry. Hold on a second. And did you always, did you always get the 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 we're we're recording message? I just want to verify because I, I did. Okay, thank yes. you. Thank you. Okay, and you guys, any questions that you want to email to me, my email will be underneath my picture there for the whole time. Uh, so basically, when I G presented that, yeah. Hi, it's Mai. Sorry, everybody, for being late, but thank you so much for being here. I just wanted to uh, make note to everybody that this is being recorded. So any of our participants that's on Zoom and also in the rooms to know that this is being recorded. Okay, it's and it's just audio only. Great. So okay. if you're not comfortable, you know, um, please either log off or just close it off or mute your microphone. But this is a recorded uh, workshop. Thank you. Fabulous. And also then if you want a, a copy of the PowerPoint to have for yourself, just email me and I will email you this uh, PowerPoint back. Okay. And then we can keep talking for as long as we want. But anyway, uh, You'll see up there on the screen two pamphlets that I wrote in 1986. I got into Overeaters Anonymous in 1974. I got into Al-Anon in 1975. And I finally got into AA in 1980. Now, all that time, I was also an alcoholism counselor, training others, lot of intellectual information. But the walking the walk of surrendering to following some different guidelines uh, took a lot of time and worked through resistance. So I, I'm here with that. But here's what the reason I held those up there is because since 1986, I have been struggling and chewing and thinking about this issue. One, about transferring obsessions. And two, what happens if a person sees that they need not just their first primary numero uno recovery program, but another one. What? We're going to look into that, all right? So I'm not going to go through all this list of my credits. I'm a very accomplished person, blah, blah, blah. Started an addiction working for Mayor Lindsay in 1967 in New York City. And uh, a lot of wonderful things happened, and we can talk about them later. Great, great stuff. That. Uh, I didn't really ask for, it was kind of thrust upon me and I showed up. And, and this year we're gonna be launching the Judy Hollis Obesity Prevention Symposium at Keck School of Medicine at USC um, to have a yearly symposium for medical people to look at obesity as an addiction and recovery from it as a spiritual endeavor. That's the basic focus. More on that later if you care. So my intention today is that we're going to be exploring transferring obsessions, addictions, or compulsions. We're going to focus on food as the primary one because it's usually the last one and therefore the most problematic. You know what? The last one is always the problem because if you're giving up other things, you always have that last one to turn to. Oh, as long as I still have this, it doesn't feel so bad. It's not so big a surrender. It's not uh, that difficult. 
And then we're going to look at why do people resist? I mean, it's just like me. Boy, when I do my exercise, I feel so great. No, I don't want to exercise. When I do my writing, I feel so great. No, I don't want to get to my writing. Why is it? Do we not feel deserving? Let's talk about that later, okay? About that resistance. So I'm going to move along because we started late. I want to skip some things. So my most important criteria for giving this talk is that I am a lifelong chronic compulsive overeater. I was raised by two fat parents. Usually that means you're 80% likely to be fat yourself, part genetic, part environmental. Uh, this particular picture was taken in a market in Bangkok, Thailand, two years before I got into Overeaters Anonymous. And a nice little Thai lady in the market came up to me and went over here to this bulbous upper arm and she'd never seen anyone like me. She just kept staring at me. And then she went to my arm and she pushed it in. Like she thought it was a blow up doll. She wanted to push it in and see if it popped back, which it did. And, you know, they say in this program, we paid our dues. And that stands for painful and incomprehensible demoralization. And I was ridiculed all my early life. I'm the, the kid fatty, fatty, two by four, all that horrific teasing. And it wasn't because I wanted to be that way. I dieted my way to 222 pounds. I didn't want to look like this. I didn't want to spend the first three days of that trip going to pharmacies looking for calamine lotion and powder because my legs had rubbed together and were bleeding or my bra straps had created those bloody marks on my shoulders. So if you're new, we know how hard it is. So is one program enough? There are 155 registered programs that use the 12-step model. You know, AA was the starting one. And I just already talked about the last is most difficult that we'll get into more of it. You know, sometimes Al-Anon, ACA, that's Adult Children of Alcoholics, ACOA, uh, CODA, Codependence Anonymous. Sometimes it's easier to get into those ones where you think you're going to be focused on someone else. You know, that seems like, oh, OK, I can do that one. Uh, and then they turn the tables on you and they say, well, if you've got one finger pointing this way, there's three fingers pointing back at you. You have to look at yourself. You have to work on yourself. It's all about you working on you. Oh, God. what a trick. So Patrick Carnes, a, a very big writer in SLA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, he says that transferring obsessions is like switching chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, there's no escape. Uh, first of all, I want you to know that those of us who do delve into the other areas, it usually takes us back to numero uno. Uh, if you find, you know, there's so much now with the new stuff about marijuana. If you find AA people who go to smoking pot, it usually takes them back to the mothership, which is alcohol. 
I want to tell you about a friend of mine named a friend of mine named Ann W, who was a very big speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous. She went all over Southern California, driving every night to a different meeting where she spoke and she carried the message of AA recovery. Well, Ann secretly had diabetes she never told anyone about. And Ann was found dead in her shower and her apartment was strewn with jelly beans. So people cut, want to get into arguments about which of our problems is the most serious. I think Anne had a serious problem with sugar. By the way, the OA program is not against sugar, as far as I know, but that um, might have been a message you got. So anyway, what happens at first when you see I might need another program is you say, not this too. I should be handled be able to handle this through my AA recovery program and with my AA sponsor. Okay, maybe it's easier to think about fixing others. That's why I mentioned those other programs, but I need another program. A lot of people who go finally to Al-Anon say, Al-Anon is a graduate school because those you need to work on relationships. I go, to a, a few double winners meetings, which is um, for people who are in Al-Anon as well as other programs. So the problem then when you get to facing your food issues is you have to work on facing your mind-body split. And we hear a lot of this, about this in women's magazines and meditation and all this other stuff. It's very popular in the culture. But what I had to learn in Overeaters Anonymous was that my body doesn't lie. My head lies. My head will talk me into anything. But my body will go, whoa, no, we can't do that. Whoa, that's really uncomfortable. And if I don't want to listen, I might just shut her up with a Twinkie. Oh, come on. Come on. We can handle this. I said to someone earlier in the week, I said to Sherry, we were worried about if there might be an issue that uh, would cause some problems. And I said to Sherry, okay, Sherry, I'll take the heat. And then afterwards I thought, Jude, that's your lifelong thing that you'll be, you know, the warrior out there fighting other people's battles. I was a union organizer. I wanted to be at the front of the line carrying the flag. Uh, <laughs> long stories. So it's just not fair. And, you know, I had most of my recovery in Southern California. And when you say it's just not fair, people say, honey, the fair is in Pomona. The L.A. County Fair is in Pomona. You can't look for fair here. It's just here's what's in front of me. Do I want to do it or not? Do I take the consequences or not? So we've just got to stop with this unjust thing. Now, our culture is really mean to us in this area because it, it says things like Nike, just do it. Or Nancy Reagan, just say no. Or as my mother used to say, just push yourself away from the table. As she at the same time was inviting me to sit down with her to eat those buttered rolls with the poppy seeds dripping down our, our forearms. 
Or you might be very much into minimizing your situation with food. Oh, I just love to eat. So what? <laughs> what? What does that have to do with it? Could I say that when my doctor says you weigh 222 pounds and I say, oh, I just love to eat. <laughs> I'm just a cute little girl. I don't know very much, doc. What do you think I should do? And then hand me a big uh, diet across a big brown desk. Hand me that 1,200 calorie diet. Come on. We're not dumb. We're not cute little girls. We know more about this than most people. But do you really want to know what you know? I don't think so. We've got to realize that what we're dealing with has to be taken very seriously at first. You know, we have a phrase in our program, we're not a, gum, a glum lot. And we laugh and we joke and our meetings are a lot of fun very many times. But we also have to initially take ourselves seriously that this is a lifelong chronic illness. And what I got to write about in a number of my books was the issue about that we've taken nurturance and we've turned it into destruction. That those wires got twisted. Now, you know, Margaret Mead or others might tell us that the, the same source that offered us our comfort was also the, the civilizer, the punisher, uh, the source of limitation. So that's where some of that wiring got crossed. You know, I talked earlier about going to doctors all my life. Doctors, Weight Watchers, doctors, Weight Watchers, pills, pills, doctors, Weight Watchers. And scare tactics never work in fighting addiction or compulsion. They never, ever do. The message I got from my first OA meeting was, we know how hard it is. It wasn't like, do you ever have other programs tell you that the other addictions will be easy? Oh, just have one drink. It'll be easy to give up. How many times have nutritionists told you, just use moderation? But at Overeaters Anonymous, people alerted me to many of the painful emotions that would come to the fore as I was giving up my urge to shovel down, to stuff something in my mouth. They said, we know how hard it is. And not just diet tips, that's a very small part of the OA program, but other behaviors and other uh, ways of being in the world I was getting instruction from people who were doing it themselves. They weren't sitting in a little room with plants with suede patches on their elbow saying, well, my dear, a lot of our research has shown that X, Y, Z, or here's a new drug that we're, uh, you wanna be part of a clinical trial? Maybe you have a Prozac deficiency. You know, when I started the first eating disorder units was in the 80s. And it was like everybody thought overeating was a Prozac deficiency. I mean, really. And now, you know, nobody would talk about the side effects. Nobody would talk about the difficulty getting off the drug that was being helpful. I'm not judging here. I'm not telling anybody you should be not taking anything. I'm not a physician. Just... Our life is at stake. 
okay? Spiritually, when you talk to your inner, innermost self. Yes, sometimes it's really hard. And, you know, just for today, maybe I can't face it. But we hang out with other people who are facing life on life's terms. You know, in the 60s, we used to smoke a little grass and say, ah, you know, realities for people who can't handle drugs. You know, not like us. We can handle drugs. <laughs> well, now in recovery, almost 50 years later, I will tell you that reality is for people like me who can't handle drugs. I have to live in reality. I cannot keep playing with myself, keep kidding myself. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. Look here, this picture. She said, there they are around a coffin. I'm saying this for the people who don't have the pictures right now, but I'll email them to you. What caused his early death? The guy says, alcoholism. <gasps> Didn't anyone take him to AA? Oh, he wasn't that bad. You see, shouldn't have to go to AA. Well, AA is very different than it was in the old days. We might even consider taking that anonymous off of the name. Okay, quickly, I'm going to go through this list about what all addictions and compulsions and obsessions seem to have in common. And you decide and think about how much of this applies to you with which substance behavior or whatever. Mainly the inability to stop, that once I start, I cannot stop the behavior. It takes over and has a mind of its own. And a lot of that is because we grew up with a sense of demand for immediate pleasure versus deferred gratification. I remember calling my sponsor every half hour my first couple of weeks in the program, and she'd say, Honey, nobody dies of starvation between lunch and dinner. <laughs> oh, really? I thought I was going to die. Can't I just grab that little nut on the kitchen counter? Can't I? What? I can't even clean up the crumbs on the... Oh. So because of this attempt to learn about deferred gratification... We have a preoccupation with the substance. When's my next hit? How am I going to handle that party? Got to eat in advance before I go. So when I, when I see people who are in recovery, but they're operating with that kind of fear, they are still in the illness. And I, I'm really going to get to this later and maybe aggravate people when I talk about being able to live without fear. Uh, but just, you know, kind of uh, pinpoint what I've just said. Now, this is important. Chasing that first bite. Nearly every alcoholic, overeater, heroin addict says that they're, they keep chasing after that first hit of heroin. Learned it first in 1968 on the streets of New York, working with heroin addicts on the Upper West Side near Needle Park. We said, I just want to have that first bite experience. I just want to have it like the old days. And we also call this euphoric recall, that we keep remembering these wonderful memories about the substance. We forget the downside. And that's why AA literature says, see the drink through to the next morning. Okay. 
let's let's see this binge through to the next morning. How am I going to feel tomorrow? Do I want to have to go through the withdrawals? Do I want to have to uh, be full of beating myself up and guilt and self-loathing and all the stuff we do to ourselves? So the, because we're always preoccupied, we always have a loss of self-esteem because we can never do it perfectly. That's why when people fall off the wagon, when people have a slip, I say, come on, get back on the horse and get riding. Don't give it more than half a second because I was a therapist. So I used to always figure out why I ate. That's why I became a therapist to figure out why I was doing this to myself. And I could stand in front of the refrigerator and just keep packing it in and explaining why I was doing it. No, next, move on. So, of course, there's depression and mood swings when you're operating like this. And this is what they started seeing as this Prozac deficiency. Oh, you are. Uh, and be very careful of labels and diagnostic categories. I, I'm writing a whole new book about this stuff. This has made me crazy all my life. But people want that diagnosis so badly. Well, my doctor says that I'm bipolar. I want to wear it on my T-shirt so I can warn you how to treat me. Yeah, maybe you're bipolar. Very ambiguous kind of diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. It's all true. I'm not arguing any of it. Now what? So what? This program tells you how to get started to get out of the ditch. Not got what got you into the ditch. So... Again, with all obsessions, including gambling, whatever they are, there are rituals around your behavior. Oh, I'm going to drink some decaf coffee before dinner. Uh, uh, I'm going to blow on my dice. I hope we'll talk about Gamblers Anonymous for a few minutes later. And so we've moved to a place where we're on automatic pilot with the substance and we hardly know when or why we're on the program or off the program. So now let's look at how people have had contempt to getting into these programs prior to investigation. This is what's called resistance. And one of the things is, uh, especially if we're in one 12-step program, we start comparing bottoms. And I don't mean this by uh, looking in the mirror. It's about the bottom that you had to get to with the substance. Now, I believe that in my eating problem, I had a, a very low bottom because I had to get all the way to 222 pounds. I was I was functional. I, I didn't like the clothes I had to wear. We only had Lane Bryant in those days. And there were things I didn't like. But then it finally started getting to every day I swore off, every day I went on yet another diet, and every day I ended up that night binging. So it was difficult for me to get to AA because in AA, in my drinking, I always uh, didn't have that much negative consequences. I was functional. I was training alcoholism counselors. Come on. I knew everything. And I managed it. I kept my job. Of course, my husband was beating me up because he was a daily drinker. But I didn't talk about that. And I thought I had caused him to hit me. 
You know, when you're a battered child, you you think my parents couldn't want to hit me. It's my fault. So these are all issues we deal with. And so another issue is AA snobbery. Is when I first came here, the AAs were kind of condescending to us people in other programs. Remember, this was uh, 1974, okay? Uh, and at the meetings, AA people would say, oh, little girl, they usually had a Southern accent and uh, they kind of wanted to act like they were dumb. Today in AA, you don't see it that that much, but it used to be they say, hey, little lady, I spilt more alcohol on my shirt than you ever drank. And it was like, what? You're going to want to compete for how bad is it? I mean, it's bad enough that I'm spending my Saturday morning coming to this church basement. Why do you have to make it like I don't qualify? Like uh, I'm not sick enough. Don't you think every day of my life I tell myself I'm not sick enough? So in 1958, Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, uh, tried to examine this question. He wrote a pamphlet you can get on the internet called Problems Other Than Alcohol. And there were too many narcotics people, heroin addicts, not, not, not the fat ladies yet, but other people who wanted to hone, you know, get into this AA. And pretty much in that pamphlet, he said, no, we can't take them all in. And we can't dilute our message. We want to have the identification be one person who's been self-destructive with alcohol. We want them to be able to share their story and that will attract the newcomer to stay with us. So we, in the food issue, also with alcohol, have a problem from the culture as well. It's not just the treatment. It's the culture. So I'm giving you these two pictures to tell you a little story about some research that was done in the 1960s, looking at cultural attitudes. And they took the countries of France and Italy. This was about alcohol, alcoholism. France had a high, very high rate of alcoholism and Italy had a low rate. Both of them were cultures that said, you know what? Drink alcohol, drink a lot, drink as much as you want. Sit at the table, enjoy your meal, sip your wine. But there was one crucial difference. In France, there was a lot of encouragement to get drunk and act like an idiot. To get up on that table and dance, put that chandelier on your head, you are très cute. Not so in Italy. In Italy, it was like, drink at home, drink like a gentleman, enjoy, enjoy your drinking, and don't use it to soothe emotional pain or to be different than who you are. Ding, 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 ding. Remember that phrase for later on, okay? We cannot use food to soothe emotional pain and make us different than we are. And the only way out of that quagmire is to behave in a way that makes you feel good about yourself, that you don't want to punish yourself with excess. 
what punish no 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 i'm doing this to comfort myself not to punish myself really really let's talk talk with your sponsor about that write about that do a comparison on both sides of the pages using it for comfort using it to punish see what develops for you now we have a culture that says eat 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 to excess and we're going to laugh with you about it oh my god i just read an article about halloween you know we have the major binge zone between halloween and valentine's day it's just total go for it indulge it shove it down your kids mouths and we've now moved into the fat acceptance movement i i agree nobody should be ridiculed and punished for their overweight and their eating behavior no matter how popular the biggest loser is as a television show don't get me started you know encouraging people to push and yell and put people down you know now we have we have lizzo we have all of our clothing sizes have expanded uh, great happy mazel tov but let's look at where this is going the excess about this i mean there is a health factor here i know scare tactics don't ever motivate anybody but let's just look at the milieu that we're dealing with the culture is out to get you and i'm going to get to that in just a second so i was talking to you about uh people feeling contemptuous resistant toward getting involved with these programs before they even get into them they're already you know judging 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 well, now I want to talk to you about the attitudes that come up after the person looks. And this, these, phrase, these phrases, contempt prior to investigation, these are things that come from the AA Big Book. So one thing that people don't like about the OA program, they say, well, there's no criteria for diagnosing. I mean, how fat do you have to be? We got the vomiters here. We got anorexics. What, how do you diagnose yourself? And then, then there's this issue about abstinence versus sustenance. And I hope I'm gonna to get to you about that because after my first 20 years, I stopped using the word abstinence and I talk about my commitment to sustenance. I eat and behave in a way to try to sustain the gains I've already made, to sustain this lifestyle and this person that you have helped me create along with the help from the universe i'm not abstaining from anything so maybe it involves to give up counting days we'll get to this in a minute and i'm just gonna you know kind of move ahead because there's too much to say here and i want to hear from you guys uh so in the big book it also says something like this is a simple program for complicated people well, I say it's a complicated program for complicated people. It's very involved, it's very nuanced, and that's why you cannot figure it out. It requires close and steady sponsoring, often more than one sponsor, more than one consultant. And 
the frame changes, the frame changes, your situation changes, and you have to keep coming at it from new angles. Um, I was going to quote, but I don't have it up here now, but something about, you know, anybody can understand these programs and how they work. Read the 12 steps and on and on about how it works. But you have to really be doing it. It's in the process of doing it that you keep learning what it's about. Well, of course, you could say that about anything, but it's really true in this case. So there are some who are basically too smart to ever want to get help in these programs. Very often professionals, healthcare professionals. That's why this IDAA was created and a couple of other organizations. I got my, when I started the nation's first eating disorder unit in San Pedro, California in 1975, I got a lot of resistance from my fellow alcoholism counselors, people I had trained as alcoholism counselors. You know, the counselors would come into staffings and they'd be chomping on an ice cream bar, just kind of like a defiant, I don't have to control this. I found out from the patients that the nurses during at night, the nurses were popping popcorn at the nursing station. I said, are you kidding me? This is so disrespectful. These people have come from worldwide locations to get help with this. And you're gonna tease them with popcorn smell wafting down the hallways? Not a clue. Not a clue. These were alcoholism counselors, totally unconscious. Now, we had it better when we did the programs at the Navy Hospital. They, we put together programs we called the Chunks and the Drunks. And we had uh, everybody in the same, same groups for their psychological stuff. And then you might have to have separate groups to talk about the substance. And I would ask patients, do not talk in your therapy group about food and do not talk in your nutrition group about your feelings. Keep those separate. The problem is they've all been mushed together and you'd rather use the wrong professional to talk about the wrong subject, another form of resistance. So if you were in any programs or you're a very smart professional or anything like that, I want to ask you to try to set all of that aside when you surrender and walk in to the doors of these programs. I had to raise my hand in a newcomer in, as a newcomer in AA with many patients who had been my patients for years before. And now they were in AA and doing well. And I had raised my hand as a newcomer. And they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. Fabulous. I, when people say, I don't know, it is such a wonderful place to be. You are open. You are an empty cup waiting to be filled. We can put something new in there for you. So here are some ways people manifest that they're not feeling empty. One is the head nodding. You know, you hear somebody say something at a meeting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I know that. I, I learned that in my AA program. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Now, when I mentioned this once before, 
somebody said to me, well, Jude, they're just trying to be encouraging to the speaker. You know, they're, they're saying, ah, I get that. I identify. Yes. Yeah, that's true. But what are you telling your inner self when you're busy nodding your head? You're saying, I already know that. I've been there, done that. I learned that. Or else you're saying, oh, I never did that. I'm not that bad. I can't do that. I won't do that. So just be careful of all those kind of statements that are driving you away from the help you need. My opinion, after all. So difficult, difficult, difficult. We're trying to teach an addict about moderation with food. And a lot of my early battles in the treatment programs was that I had nice young nutritionists, young ladies, uh, usually thin. They'd become nutritionists to control their weight. They had long, skinny fingers. And they started telling my patients about moderation. You can eat that, 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 and that. Just have a few bites. Come on. I get this all the time. I get this all the time. A lady just called me from a treatment center. She's a patient in a treatment center and she's overweight, obese, and most of the other patients are anorexic and thin. And the nutritionists are telling her to sit down and eat what they want her to eat. Well, they got a job to do. I understand. But, you know, as a therapist, I was so careful not to give people advice because they have to live with the advice. You have to live with the consequences, no matter who's telling you what. So there's where personal responsibility comes in. So, yes, ultimately, later on, we are forging a new relationship with the substance. But in the early days, it might be important to stay away from whatever it is. This requires daily teasing out with intimacy, honesty, and visibility with a sponsor. Again, let me just reiterate, you want to move from soothing yourself with the substance to using it to fuel yourself. And when I would teach these divine dine workshops, I would tell people to chew that food to liquid. Think of it as cardboard and just keep it in your mouth as long as you can using every single uh, digestive juice to bathe it. And then when it's liquid, let it go down the gullet and pick up the fork for the next bite. Fueling. Now, at the same time, I was teaching people, I want you to really enjoy your eating. I want you to savor it and suck it dry and not waste any of it by inhaling it and drowning it with water. The thing they hated most about Divine Dine was that they couldn't drink water till the meal was over. Wanted to drown it, get it out of my mouth. I love to eat. Oh, do you? Why do you need to drown it? So I am proposing that our recovery in Overeaters Anonymous is about guilt-free eating. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. People are going to be upset with this. In the German language, there are two verbs for the word to eat. 
for a human to eat, that is called Essen, S-S mein Kind. A human esses. But when you're talking about an animal eating, you call that fressen. And you are a little fresser, aren't you? You're an animal eater. Always worthwhile to think about. You know, we've all tried all of the tricks and they do work, you know, like maybe I'm not going to eat standing up for a while. I'm only going to eat sitting down, oh, not, never in the car. All of these things help retrain all of those synapses so you're not on automatic pilot. Now, when I was training doctors early on, you know, when we were first opening the units, I had to keep emphasizing this is not, I repeat, not an adjustment model. Because people always said, well, when can they become normal? No normalcy here. I come from a radical psychiatry background. We believed that people who adjust to this particular society are not necessarily all that well put together. What is normal in a materialistic culture based on competition and winning? What is normal? Solutions like the biggest loser. The solution that is proposed in these 12-step programs is about a spiritual identity of learning about another aspect of yourself. And we call that entering the fourth dimension. And that requires a great deal of work on humility, which we can have time for another day for sure. What's the difference between humility and humiliation? How do we negotiate those lines? So here comes the judge. Here comes the justice. We are going to forget about guilt. You had a slip. Great. Back on the horse. Don't give it another thought. If there's a lesson to learn, it'll pop right up. Learn that lesson. Move on. You know, guess what? It's going to happen again. That same lesson's going to come to you again. So just catalog it and move on. You are the victim. You have this illness. You didn't ask for it. But you have the responsibility to take the treatment, which I believe is going to these meetings and doing what's suggested here. But let's get into discussion about that. I'm almost done here. So again, the last is the most difficult, but it's helpful that there's someone else doing it and caring about how you're doing it. I just recently had a, an anniversary in one of my programs, and I just kept saying, thank you guys so much for, for listening to my story, to listening to what I was going through, to be interested and caring. I, I have such great homage and respect for the, uh, all the people who've helped me in this program. So yes, the last is the hardest and food will probably be the last for most of us. And it's also hard because we have to take that lion out of the cage and walk him around the block three times a day or maybe five times a day, which is usually uh, statistically, it's better to eat six smaller meals than uh, the three meals with nothing in between. But we each have to find our way. That's the deal. We have to experiment consult, go back. The biggest 
problem we get into with AA, and I'm going to get into this right now in a minute, is we are going toward our substance. We are not resisting it. We're not swearing off anything. We're going toward that new relationship. And that's more subtle. And you'll hear a lot in the OA program that failing to plan is planning to fail. So that we have to be mindful and pay attention. What's my activity level today? What do I need from myself today? What do others need from me today? And how does food fit into all that? Now, is having an AA program a hindrance or a help? Let's say this, this particular lecture was delivered to doctors who were in AA, but might be considering they had an OA program. Uh, they needed an OA program, excuse me. Well, we got problems here, okay? In the early days of uh, OA, and I was in Los Angeles, the birthplace of OA in 1974, where I started getting recovery, we had very few long-timers in, in OA who could talk to us about what things were like as you got further down the pike. We had Doris S. and her sister Jean and um, a few other gals, my great friend Beverly. Uh, but mostly we had AA speakers. We invited in AA speakers to teach us about it. Now, Roseanne, the founder of OA, who, who struggled with her, her weight and her eating most of her life, uh, she had initially been attracted to these 12-step programs by going to GA, Gamblers Anonymous. And I think it might have been the better path for us to follow more in the lines of Gamblers Anonymous than of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the AA sponsor, uh, speakers were very confident and they knew a lot and they talked a lot of good words and we liked it. And we took their program, Hook, Line and Sinker, we read out of the big book and just uh, translated uh, the word alcohol and put in food. But there was one little problem. One was chapter nine of the big book where it said, listen, if you're really uptight for a drink, why don't you just grab a piece of candy and you'll feel better. Now, in all of the revisions of the AA big book, that has still not been changed. It is still in there, still promoting that you use something taken orally to take the edge off. Please. Okay, don't get me started. Now, there's more. Let's go down to how the big book, I believe, does not serve me well. Uh, it says, we are men who have lost our legs. We never grow new ones. The prayer that he will someday control and enjoy his drinking is the fervent prayer of every alcoholic. So when OA people take this, they will not listen to what I'm saying, which is I think the goal is that we learn to manage and enjoy, manage and enjoy our eating. We get to that place where moderation can work for us. It's working for me. But takes a long time and a lot of work and we'll deal with that in a little bit and we'll follow questions. 
So we become a compassion eater, a compassionator. We want to keep behaving in a way that puts us in a position to receive the state of grace that's offered here. We've got to eat. We've got to have balance. As the Buddhists say, we've got to find the middle path. And we have to avoid screeching. It's like when you first learn to drive, right? You're going down the road and you go, oh, my God, I'm heading too far over into the other lane. Ah! Screech back over, go in the ditch, horn deep in the ditch, ah! go to the other side. <laughs> That's a lot of what early recovery looks like. But eventually you become a little more experienced at this thing, or at least this is what's happened for me. And I'm veering over there a little bit. Let me come back. I am not one of those people who had to leave and regain 100 pounds to get back in the air. You hear those stories. But what about hearing from people who say, I, I've been here a long time. I use what I've learned here and I keep readjusting and readjusting. As long as you stay visible and out there, that's what counts. No guilt eating. No hiding and secret eating, no attitudes promoting public drunkenness, just staying in the middle of the road. So, the examined life. So, there was this Buddhist monk at a party. It was a literati party in New York. And this lady who was kind of full of herself, she went up to the monk and he had on his his long brown robes tied at the waist with a little straw belt. And she said, you know, I've been curious. Tell me about Buddhism. What is Buddhism anyway? And he said, well, do you want the long version or the short version? She said, come on, it's a party. Just give me the short version. So he said, well, the short version is pay attention. She said, oh, come on, I need more than that. Okay, give me a longer version. He said, well, a longer version is pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. So that's where that planning thing comes in. That's where the staying visible comes in. That's where that, the whole thing is about paying attention. What am I doing? Who am I on this earth? What are my real intentions? These are the kind of things I have to write with my sponsor about. You know, this is not new material. Socrates, way back with the Greeks, said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And Gloria Steinem, during the early women's movement, said, and the unlived life is not worth examining. So we got to be out there living it, making mistakes, scraping our knees, getting back up, getting back on that horse, living, living, learning. Now, Judy Hollis, myself, I say about this struggle with the food, paying attention means taking one lust look, not one last look, but one lust look. I want to look at how I am grasping at this substance. You know, Buddhists talk about attachment locked in. Can you hold it with a loose hand? Can you live your life as an open book? Can you live guilt-free 
And how about burn free? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is I've often stood in situations and I can kind of smell that burn smell that my brain is working overtime trying to convince me that this will be a good thing to do. How important is it? How much attention are you giving to it? I'm going to tell a, a story just very quickly that I just remembered. Uh, I was giving a, uh, a talk, a, a day-long seminar at a uh, somewhere in Connecticut, just outside upstate New York. They were putting me up at a nice Hyatt. And I, I got there, you know, the night before, and I went into the, uh, the, um, the gift shop of the hotel. And they had this package thing and a cellophane package. I picked it up. I couldn't believe it. It was a combination of two of my favorite things. It was bittersweet chocolate covered pistachio nuts. Can you imagine? I was thinking, what great genius thought of making this product? And I said, well, I'm doing a whole day seminar tomorrow. I have to have a clear head. I don't want to go near any of that stuff. I'm just going to buy a package and put it in my suitcase and I'll take it home and I'll have it at home. I'll eat it like a lady, etc. Later that evening, I went down to buy it and I was again transfixed in front of the counter and I was reading the ingredients and then I, I wanted to make sure to get the address of the company because I'm going to buy a lot, put in my suitcase. And then if I run out, I want to be able to reorder. And what's happening is I find myself kind of bowing at this counter, paying homage to this cellophane package. And that's what I call the burn smell. Something that moment of clarity said to me, what are you doing? Look how important, you know what? So this is what I tell to people. If you can hold it with a loose hand, if you can take it or leave it, then you can have it. If not, not now. But if you're clutching after it and you insist upon it and you're making up plans for even reordering, better to stay away. So the Benedictine monk, Thomas Merton, who did a lot of work in China, said, I didn't become a monk to suffer more than other people. I became a monk to suffer more effectively than other people. I want to learn from my suffering. I want to find better behaviors for myself and better ways to fly. That is the spiritual experience. And I want to always have respect for my worthy adversary, the food, and how I can grab it and it can grab me. You know, in the 60s, we had a lot of great, great rock and roll songs. And one was Marvin Gaye singing, Can I Get a Witness? And that's why we need to have a food sponsor that helps us in witnessing our behavior around food. And we had Aretha Franklin singing, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect. 
You know, when the matador enters the bull ring, he bows down to the bull. He pays homage to his worthy adversary. In Moby Dick, Ahab said prayers to the whale before he did battle. In our country, the Native Americans bowed down to the buffalo before going on the hunt and thanked him for what he was providing in terms of sustenance and clothing. We have respect for ourselves and the planet. So recovery programs to me are an invitation, not a condemnation. I invite you to join me to become a spiritual seeker. In chapter four, we read a passage that says, what's the point? The point is we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but for us, that also means living in a state of perpetual longing, looking to overturn the next rock. Some people are dealing a lot these days with emotional sobriety. Uh, my friend Jennifer always says, program is so difficult because we have to grow up in public. People watch us in our stages of developing emotional maturity, the ability to live with unresolved problems. So I'll tell you, after my 48 years of being here, I know there is nothing I can eat, drink, buy, or kiss that makes any difference. They are all delaying tactics. I'm constantly working on growing up and watching my perpetual longing. So I have always believed that we're really dealing with gambling. No matter what the substance or behavior, we say, I've got the best of it, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. It got you, it won't get me, my case is different. Or if I'm going back to behaviors, this time will be different. My, my friend Ann W. believed she could guzzle a jelly beans and not die in her shower. This is how to get a hold of me. My email is my name, J-U-D-I-H-O-L-L-I-S at AOL.com. Email me and we can make a date to talk, okay? I, I have other things, but I want to close now so we can have a lot of time for our discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Judy. Who is the who is running this meeting? This um... it is my hi everybody. Oh, good. Hi, my. Uh, first off, I want to apologize for my tardiness. We had a bit of car problems because I have a electronic car, which is supposed to make your life easier, but it didn't. Yeah. Because cool. my keys didn't attach. So I was like, oh, I can't do that now, but thank you. And I am so grateful for this team that we had just to come in and just swiftly get things moving. And um, let's thank you, Judy, for that amazing work. Time and you know her, her many years of experience, strength, and hope. And um, 
I hope that you know really resonates with a lot of you all. And just for being here and filling up this room, and I forget how amazing this room is, mm -hmm. how amazing it is to be face to face and to see everybody and make eye contact and just to feel the energy surging, you know, and just recover recovery mm -hmm. surging through us. So um let's move forward right now. This is a seven tradition based um workshop. So all actually all of our workshops are tradition. We're here gonna pass the basket around in the rooms, but um you all we have um we're gonna put the um Donation, the seven tradition information on. I don't know if uh, Sherry, do you have that, or we can move out of the way, and you guys can see on the screen too. And we'll just kind of pass it back. We're going to get started. And then, um, yeah. Shelby said she's putting a link in the chat also. Perfect. Thank you. Um, our dear Shelby is also putting the link in the chat if uh, the one of y'all that are in the Zoom. Wait, she says oh, no. Oh, Andy, can you open the chat for Shelby? You know, it seems like the audio is muffled from the room. Is there a microphone? Yeah, let, let me turn it up. Here? That might be better. Thank Maya, you. is there a suggested yes. donation? Nope. Whatever you guys, I mean, yeah. I don't know what we talked about the suggested donation. Was. It was ten dollars. Yeah, all right. The suggested donation was ten dollars. So thank you for reminding me that. Uh, is the volume better? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, better. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, Judy, I know we didn't have, um, uh, I know you guys had a schedule, so I didn't know if we wanted to after this open up for Q and A or to share and whatnot, so. Actually, also, uh, anybody who wants to send me their notes, uh, I'd love to get your notes because I like to see what you found important because mm -hmm. I never know. So uh, you got my email under my name. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. So Shelby posted the seven tradition information. Um, uh, anybody in our Zoom world, um, you know, a hybrid, we can also uh, donate via DonorBox, Bell, and I think on yeah PayPal also. We have access to all three of those. All right. So how does everybody feel? Good. Okay. Um, Rudy, is it okay if we go into like a like five minute meditation real quick and then we'll move into Q and A so everybody to just connect and ground real quick and then we'll go into your Q and A. Well, I don't know. I think especially when you're on uh, Zoom, you can go take your break when you want and come back and don't disturb anybody. I'd rather have the time together. Yeah. Okay. I have to use a bathroom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. You want to do question Q and A? Yeah. You're excused. You're excused. There's someone in the restaurant right now, but yeah. Um, we'll go ahead and move on forward since the seven traditions passed. And then also Judy did list her information if everybody wants to contact her. And then you guys can also exchange information so to stay connected, okay? So we'll turn the room back over to Judy and then uh, move on. Um, I don't know if you, uh, a lot of the Zoomers, if you guys want to raise your hand via virtual world and then um, our team here, or uh, Judy, can you see the hand? I do, yeah. Marin, would you like to start? Okay. Anybody in the room? 
Let's have one person talking. Go ahead, Mary. Uh, oh, hi, Marina. I'm a uh, overeater, anorexic, and bulimic. Judy, thank you so much. Oh, my God. I feel so privileged to hear you today. I'm 29 years in the program. I haven't thrown up in 29 years or starved myself below 90 pounds. I was a 60-pound anorexic. I came across your first book when I was in Miami. I was 20 years old. I had been tied to chairs with tubes put down my nose. And I, and I read Fat is a Feminist Issue. And I remember just holding that book and reading that book. And it was a long time before I got into program, but I got there and I never, I just want to thank you because I, no one spoke to me like you spoke to me in that book. And I got to program and I got a sponsor and I did the work. So I was able to feed myself and get better. But um, I just wanted to thank you. I just want to thank you for this workshop too. Because I realized that I took a lot of notes and my notes are a lot about like um, not really being completely honest because there's a way to be dishonest towards yourself. And I have to be honest with myself. So thanks for letting me share. Thanks, Marin. You know, I realized that I that sponsoring is so great because I'll lie to myself, but I won't lie to that other person. So we need each other. Who's next? Come on, I want to hear how you've thought about these issues. What do you know? What do you think? Hi, I'm Sherry, a compulsive overeater. Thank Sherry. you so much for this workshop. I, I'll lie to anybody. I'll lie to myself. I'll lie to anybody. I'm a low bottom eater. Um, I think when I was 12, started taking my first diet pills 13 I started bulimia um and so I you know I've got a <laughs> and I'm 73 now um but uh, while you were talking I realized that I was still lusting after a box of chocolates that was hidden from me during Christmas my family knows knows me and you know they were they were being very um they're being very wonderful to me. They they sent the they the chocolates came in. They sent them off, and I actually asked if they were sent off. I asked where they were. I couldn't go get them, and I'm still lusting after that lost box. And um, you know, you'll know the truth, and it'll set you free. So, guess what? <laughs> I'm abstinent today. I've been abstinent for a a, a while now, but. Those are the little niggly nagglies that get to you and they just take root and they start growing branches and pretty soon they're full-blown trees. Anyway, thank you so much, Judy. Thank you for your inspiration today. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, since it's a workshop, I, if you don't mind, I'll make a little comment here and there. If Oh, you know what? There's a lot of people still want to talk. So I'd rather hear from you guys if there's time later. Just uh, but I've, I've often had to make rituals around getting stuff out of my house. That's just all I'll say, because no matter where it is, I'm going to have that heat seeking missile. You know, I'm going to find it. And I'm also a grief seeking missile that I want to hurt myself sometimes. Anyway, uh, I'll talk about it later. Uh, let's go to the next person. Andy. 
I am Andy Compulsive Overeater. Thank you so much for your um, for being our um, speaker today and on um, this wonderful workshop. I wrote a lot of notes. One of my um, <clears throat> I like to lie. I'm not that sick. I I, I say that lie to myself a lot. I just wanted to thank you, and um, I I forgot all about the workshop, and people called me for help, and you know what? God had other plans and here I am. And I just want to say to everyone, I am unmuting you as uh, Jody calls you because I know you guys are all busy, but I just wanted to say I'm grateful to be here and um, thank you. Thank you for all your, um, all the things you triggered in my memory. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, there'll be a tape. <laughs> Judy. Right later. Yeah. We have a few people in the room that would like to also share. Great. Can they come to the microphone? They're here already. Yep, they're here. Okay. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daryl, compulsive overeater. Hi, Daryl. And I really appreciate uh, you uh, giving this uh, workshop. And as you know, that when I first came into the program, I went to uh, what turned out to be my home meeting uh, Monday uh, nights at Hacienda Heights. And somebody gave me a set of tapes uh, by Judy Hollis, Hope for Compulsive Overeaters was the title. And it had, uh, I think maybe six or eight cassettes in it. 12, and, 12, 12. Yeah, and I, and I listened to those <laughs> constantly when I was uh, sitting in traffic going to and from work. And, uh, and I learned so much about this disease and I was, uh, I had uh, been abstinent uh, only maybe three or four months when I first uh, got the uh, got the tapes, and uh, uh, that uh, that part in there that uh, you talked about a couple of minutes ago. If you can take it or leave it, you can have it. If you can't, you can't. Have it. If you ha must have it, you can't. And uh, uh, that was that's uh, sort of a rule. When I became abstinent, one of the big things that I was really addicted to since childhood was bread. And uh, and it would be three years before I'd have a piece of bread. And uh, but after two after one year, I was sitting with my uh, my ex-wife and uh, I I said, uh, uh, you know, uh, Judy says that if I can take it or leave it, I can have it. And I think I can take it or leave it with the bread. And she said, well, why don't you just leave it? <laughs> and, uh, that became a good big part of the room because I, anybody could say they can take it or leave it, but unless you leave it, you don't really know. So I think that I had to adjust that rule so that I had to leave it at least 60% of the time before I could apply that rule to something. That's a thank you. That's, that's beautiful. And like the last, like the last person said that she did uh, she didn't know how sick she was. You really don't know until you leave it. Mm. When you leave it, you find out how obsessed you really are. Go ahead. Hi, Judy. Um, my name is Kathy. I'm a compulsive overeater. Yeah, and I believe it's a God's job because I'm an addiction counselor and I've been oh, wow. sober 36 years. And OA is like the one for me that is so difficult, <laughs> you know? And I wanted you to talk about resistance, if you could. Um, I, I always set out in the morning, I'm going to, you know, write my gratitude list and meditate and I'm going to write a letter to God and I'm going to do, and all of a sudden I'm on TikTok <laughs> <laughs> where I've got the news on, you know, mm -hmm. and 
just the resistance for me is something I need to hear a little bit more. You said you were going to talk about it if we could. Thank you. Mm. Thanks. Uh, let me just say that there are some new meetings forming. They've been around a couple of years now on Zoom. The bridge meetings, which are helping AA people develop their OA program. Uh, so uh, just email me. I'll email you the numbers on those meetings. I go to them sometimes too. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack around that. Thanks for that great question. Uh, let's see after people talk. Okay. Uh, do you want to stay in the room or you want to give somebody who's been waiting online a little too? Uh, this is the last one in the room, then we'll switch online. Okay. Um, hi, Judy. I'm Georgia, compulsive overeater, and I want to thank you very much for everything you said today. It was so enlightening. Um, the one thing I'm, I was wondering about is you mentioned having more than one sponsor, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Well, um, you know, I always thought I need to marry like five different men. I have different things I want to <laughs> service at different times. But, uh, you know, there, I, I have one main sponsor who, do, who works with me on my psychological and spiritual stuff. I have a lot of OA sisters that I consult about my eating. I don't have that same daily commitment to a food sponsor like I once did. And, you know, I was, I don't know, my husband died early in my recovery. He died from alcoholism. And then I started dating. And I remember calling the sponsor I had had for about uh, six years already to talk about dating. And she said, you know what? You're going to have to call someone else about that. She said, I've been married for 30 years. I don't have a clue how people date or what they do. How wonderful to acknowledge these are my limitations. I don't know everything, you know spread the neediness and and spread the wealth so um, yeah i think we we need a lot of guidance here and i'm so grateful to have access to it thank you very much thanks should we go to ann ann you're muted ann you're muted okay thank you Hi, Judy. This is such a, a pleasure um, because, oh gosh, I have I have read practically all of your books and this I I'm like starstruck. But I've got a question for you. For those of us who are, you know, uh, real compulsive eaters, uh, <laughs> I I would like to know what you think about. As far as goal weights for us, um, you know, because my highest weight was 320 pounds and I, I have a sponsor who is telling me that my goal weight should be like 120 pounds. And to me, that seems really severe. But then I have, a, you know, my own doctor who's telling me that my goal weight should be like, you know, around 165 pounds. And then you have the BMI um, chart who the, the chart is saying that my, my goal weight should be somewhere in between. 
And then, um, you know, for me, I'm just wondering, is my goal weight, whatever um, God decides for me, you know, based on, you know, what I am eating at the time, um, you know, when I'm trying to be um, abstinent. So I'm just curious what your views are for somebody in recovery, um, you know, and getting all these different viewpoints on quote, a goal weight and should, should compulsive overeaters even worry about a goal weight when they're in recovery? Wow. Wow. What a can of worms. <laughs> Thanks for that question. Oh man. That's very wonderful. Thank you a lot. Um, yeah. Um, who's it up to? And, you know, one big question you might want to just write about for yourself is why is it so important? Do I want to see these different experts debating with themselves? Do I want to pick and choose? Why is it important? Uh, you know, I really, in at this stage of my life, believe it's more about function than form. Uh, I think I look fine, but I want to get around the planet with a lot of agility. I walk into a room and half of my body doesn't slosh to one side or the other. I'm muscular. Muscle weighs more than fat. Maybe that's not the muscle that I want. I like that any doctor's office I go to and I weigh in. I've been at this same goal weight now for about 15 years. And uh, I'm satisfied. I'm still wearing the same clothes from many, many years ago, which was never true in my life. Uh, I live in a culture that always says, oh, you could be a little thinner, right? The culture is always going to push you to thinner. But I, I'd be cautioned about people telling you what your goal weight should be. I think, uh, remember I said the body doesn't lie? Your body knows. Your body knows if you're eating in a way that sets up triggering, that you start getting that compulsive stuff and the, the burn smell. And, you know, all of those things are what we discuss with our sponsors. How do I look from over there? How do I smell from over there? Oh, smells like you stepped in it you know, back up, back up. But the whole idea of goal weight comes from the culture telling us about competition. You know, uh, I have some orthopedic issues because I was obese so much of my early life and my back grew in crooked and my knees did whatever they're gonna do. And, you know, I'm making my adjustments the best I can. And I, uh, I'm just grateful as hell that I'm getting around well. So uh, my top weight was 222. For the last 15 years, I've been weighing around 142. I'll go up three pounds and back down. Now I came here saying, I wanna be a hundred pound loser. I like those meetings. I wanna show off. I lost a hundred pounds. Well, I never did lose a hundred pounds. I had gotten down to 137 for a half hour flight over Chicago. But uh, I, I don't care that much anymore. I don't care. I want to be functional and and in the culture and happy and and producing at the level. And in fact, I want to make a commitment to myself, seeing how you guys 
are interested in this material. I want to get back to my writing. I've been avoiding my writing for a lot of reasons. And it's such a spiritual, wonderful experience for me to write these things. And so you've encouraged me. I just wrote big notes here, books, books, books. So thank you for that. I got what I needed out of today. <laughs> but um, you're always going to find somebody who'll give you the answer you're looking for. That's all I can say. You're the one who has to live with the answer. So, you know, I love that I'm able to say to people today, I like my body. I like how I look. And they might say, well, uh, you got big thighs, don't you? Yeah. I do have very big muscular thighs. They've had to hold up this, this structure for many years. But anyway, blah, blah. Mary? Hi, I'm I'm Mary and grateful to be in recovery. Judy, I never heard, I've read your books, but I've never heard you speak and it's really been a gift. Thank you. And thank you everybody for being here. I'm grateful to be in recovery. And the reason why I say that is I came into OA um, as you spoke about for some people through AA. And I was 20 years sober in AA when I came into OA and um, I didn't feel sober. I felt like a big liar because I knew what I was doing with food. So I had gone into OA before that. I came into, um, what year did I come in? To AA. I came into AA in 1990. So I came into OA in this 80s and late 70s trying it. And what I, the message that I received then was not forget about moderation. It was the gray sheet or the blue sheet. And if you had one extra P, you were a bad girl and yeah, all about day counting. And I didn't hear the big book in the meetings I went to, the OA meetings I went to. So I came into AA knowing I had a problem with food and it was a grace that the alcohol was put down without a problem because that really wasn't the mother of my addictions. And I was trying for 20 years, like you said, to change the word in the big book to food. And it, it didn't work for me, but I didn't want to come back to OA because of what I thought it was. Forget about moderation. I am so grateful today that you're talking about moderation. And it was somebody in AA that told me about OA now, which was then, and it wasn't what I thought it was. And I came to my first OA meeting 13 years ago. And as soon as the person spoke, the leader spoke, I just became hysterical crying. Just, I was like finally cracked open like an egg. And um, I've been there ever since, but moderation is still something that I have in moderate, moderate eating plan, which I've developed myself and with, you know, sponsors over the year. And I like that you said, we're constantly doing research and changing our eating plan as we grow and learn more about ourselves. But I've always had a tinge of feeling guilty that I have a moderate eating plan. And I'm leaving you today without that guilt. And thank you. That's what I want to say. Thank you for that. Yes. I, you know, why can't we, why can't we celebrate what this looks like? 
This is what, you know, when Gloria Steinem turned 50, they said, oh, you don't look 50. She said, this is what 50 looks like. You know, this is what my recovery looks like. I am being honest. I am on the path. And at this stage, this is as good as it gets for today, honey. You know, uh, I want more of that. I, I understand exactly what you're talking about is um, we, we, we don't have to live in fear and with self-punishment. You know, let's not use our plate for that. You know, there's plenty, plenty of other work to do in life. So, yeah, but I realize I know people get scared. When I first started talking this, I was doing a lot of retreats for OA. And I said, you know, I am going to be more experimental. I'm going to stay in close contact with my sponsor, but I might take back some things I haven't been eating for the last 20 years. And people started yelling at me. What? Are you telling alcoholics they can drink? I said, no, I'm not. It's different. We have a different illness. And enough, you know, when oh, we're go I'm going to the birthday party for OA next weekend. I'll be speaking at, at uh, Saturday, the same topic you've got. And uh, at the, when, the, when OA had its 21st birthday, I was the main speaker. And I got up and I said, you know, we're 21 now. We're becoming adults. And the job of a child is to learn from their parent what worked for the parent and then adapt it to their experience. And it's time for OA to grow up into an adult program. We are not just the children of AA. And, and if you email me and I'll give you the, the list for these bridge meetings, but people like you say, wow, the food deal is a lot harder than just the alcohol. And it requires nuance and it requires subtlety and it requires gentleness and compassion for ourselves. So many uh, different topics that I don't hear enough of at AA for me. So I'm not trying to put down anything. I'm just saying, uh, we need some variety in the message. Thank you, Marie, very much. Thanks. Parastu, can you put your camera uh, on? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, can you get your camera on so we can see? I can't. For some reason, I, my Zoom settings are not working, and I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, is it okay if I share for what I don't, I can't turn it on. <laughs> I'm okay. trying. Go for it. Because um, I'm on my phone, not my laptop. So I'm Paris Stu. And we've talked before, Judy. Thank you so, so much for everything. This is uh, it's just refreshing to hear because I am, I've been in program now 23 years. And I, I really relate to that 21, you know, like trying to make it your own. Because for the last 23 years, I have been, um, you know, following sponsored direction and abstinent and have a plan of eating and accountable to food sponsors and, and then got dietitian. I mean, I've, I've been through it all in 23 years. And the only thing that's worked is having a caring sponsor who has walked me through the steps. And each time a sponsor starts looking at my food or commenting on my food, or whatever it is, it's like there's this 
little rebellious girl that's like coming out. <laughs> and each abstinence was a wind up until I could relapse and then eat everything all over again. And I'm now realizing that like my real problem isn't food. My real problem is like my entire life, my entire life, the problem has been trying to achieve that ideal body and using whatever diet, weight loss plan, abstinence, nutritionist plan, food plan, whatever it is to achieve the ideal body. And I'm almost 50. This is what it is. This is as good as it's going to get, I think. Um, and I reach that moment of clarity that they talk about in, in, in AA, you know, the moment of clarity for me was not that I need to give up more food. It's that I need to give up the idea of this ideal body and all the ways that I'm going to try and get there because that's, what's keeping me sick. And each, you know, each time I wake up in the morning and I look at what am I supposed to eat? Oh, my doctor says, don't eat animal protein. The society says don't eat carbs and then don't eat fats. My blood sugar is this and don't eat sweets. And I don't even know what to eat anymore. Like I can't eat animal protein. I can't eat carbs. I can't eat fats. I, I can't eat sugars. And so I have to let go of all of that. And I'm at that point and I'm like, well, what now? What happens next? You know, I, I'm not going to give up any more foods. I'm not giving up food groups. I'm not eliminating anything. I want that moderation. And I think that, I think it is possible. I do. And I think it's possible through working the steps and talking to fellows and having people who understand that diet culture doesn't work. And a lot of what we're doing is diet culture. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, or I just want to say thank you and would love to hear your experience if you had any kind of um, moments of clarity like that. I think that I would not be here. I would not be in OA if I hadn't been trying to control my food my whole life. I wouldn't have bad blood sugar if I hadn't been yo-yoing my whole life. And I just want that to even out. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really relate to what you're talking about and, uh, and understand all of what, what you're saying. And uh, a lot of how I got disillusioned with uh, some counseling, uh, you know, doing counseling was that I was treating people who did not really have, I hate to say it, but did not have a psychological illness. They were programmed by the culture. And this was situational. You know, there is, there's no anorexia in third world countries. You know, Sigmund Freud's daughter was anorexic. I mean, why are we worshiping all of this Western diagnostic labeling? We do it believing that that knowledge is going to fix us. And all it's done is gotten us more and more addicted to more and more doctor prescribed drugs. Now, at the same time that I'm talking about leaning in and compassion and a little bit of moderation, I don't want to throw away the addiction model, not at all. And, you know, if you just came in from your Halloween binging, uh, 
You cannot trust how you're thinking and feeling. You cannot trust the body at that time. That body may be in withdrawals, convincing you that I think I'll have uh, I think I'll have ice cream for dinner. And, you know, I think uh, ice, ice cream is a protein. Ice cream is fish. I mean, that's what our addiction does. So we often need that four-day withdrawal period to get back into uh, a balanced body that's, that's thinking this, that's asking the questions. So I'm not just saying run out there and, and eat everything. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, we could talk forever, but I see some more people want to talk. So I, I want to go there. First of all, there's someone in the room. Thank you. I, I am Elaine. I am a compulsive overeater and I'm an addict. Hi, Elaine. And I'm brand new. So okay. I'm going to preface it with saying it's confusing and it's scary. And I come in hearing success, a lot of success. And I want to cling on to that and hold on to that. Then I'm in this workshop. I'm like, take it all back. So I, I'm kind of feeling like uh, it's OA 101, OA 102, OA 103. So I, I realize everybody's absence is their own. That's what I've learned in, in, the, in the three months that I'm here. But um, transferring our obsessions, I, I listed about seven just as you begin to talk, but I came up because I'm understanding it's a spiritual program. And if I can get the spiritual program, then I'll be able to work with the food. But I am wondering about the punish or comfort in the culture of the the Lizzo and my big fat life on cable who glamorizes that they have no problem with that. Maybe they have no health issues either. Mm-hmm. So when and then and, and so so I'm 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 scared and I'm nervous and then not here not here because I'm speaking but because of if 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 and you kind of answered it just at that last time if if what has worked is working and then we strip it away it it makes me like I don't know I don't know if I can make it if that makes sense to you I don't know if I can make it so. I, I, that was that's the first part of this. Like I, I want to hold on to what I, everyone else has had because I, I understand with being moderate. If I could have been moderate, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> if, if I could have, um, I don't want to cross talk, but if if I could have done all those things that someone just said that that took them to where they are, then I don't know why you got here. But I, I have to say this: um, one statement you made that kind of threw me for a loop. Forget guilt victim you have this illness and i'm thinking i don't want to be a victim is a cancer patient a victim maybe they are is the alcoholic a victim maybe they are maybe i am because i said i i could quickly identify seven and that's without me having to really think about it that i am i'm not normal so maybe there is going to be a normal i don't know what normal is i really don't care about normal right now i just want to Take care of me. Mm-hmm. So um, taking care of me and what I've heard in the last couple of years, because I, I've heard the term, I'm a retread. I worked down the street from this office. Uh, so about 20 years ago, I saw the sign there and I thought, oh, I need to be there. Mm-hmm. And so I've dipped in and out over the years, never got a sponsor, never stayed longer than three months because I mean, sick, I'm sick. 
So I hear you today, and it's almost like I, I hear celebration. But if you can talk to me about the one thing, and that's what my first question was about, with the um, punished comfort, the Lizzo, and and um, and that that one lady who's making millions of bucks, comfortable. They're comfortable in that, but I'm not. So that's I don't know if a question or a statement, but do you understand where I am? <laughs> I'm scared as heck. Yeah. So if I if I use your model to get where you are, then I feel safe. But if I take your today's model, then I don't know. Because guess what? Guess what? I can't. I cannot promise you any safety. I cannot. All that we get from each other here is different people walking the path, and people saying, "This is how it is for me today." And this is what I'm progressing toward. And I can offer, you know, it scares me to say it, to tell you the truth. I would rather say, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. Fix me, fix me, fix me. Instead of saying, hey, this is what recovery looks like. And I'm doing awfully well. And I just want to promise you that if it happened for me, it can happen for you. And it... It requires you finding your own path. That's what's difficult. You want me to just hand you a 1200 calorie diet across the desk? <laughs> that guy doesn't know it. He doesn't know what you need. It's between you and your soul. And that's what OA directs us, how to find out our own message. Yay. So uh, I know that isn't enough. You had a very long thing going on and uh, it's, it's not fully answering it. And I know someone else just came up in the room, but we had Alejandra waiting on the Zoom. So how do we handle this? Um, let's, can we do one more in the room, Judy? And then we'll go back to the uh, Zoom. Okay, great. It may or may not be quick. Hi, Judy, thank you. I'm Stacy, a compulsive overeater. Um, I am also relatively new in program. I joined six months ago and I had, I think I've heard people call it the honeymoon phase where things were really good and I lost weight and life seemed glorious. Um, and then, and then life kept happening. Um, and lately I've been finding myself falling back into old patterns where I'm realizing, um, self-loathing and self-sabotage are my comfort, right? That's, that's what I know. And that's, what I've done for 27 years. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you have any like practical things or experiences that you could share with us about how to start to uh, shift away from those old habits and ways of thinking that are just so deeply ingrained. Thank you. Okay, well, I would just say that it probably takes at least one lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, as I first heard you, I was, my first response was, remember, do not screech to each side of the road. Just keep self-correcting to get down the middle line. Okay. And then you will have enough clarity for your body and your soul to talk to you. And the answers will come to you when your own house is in order. I'm told that constantly. Now, Sigmund Freud said, we all have an ambivalent commitment to both life and death. 
So here we are overeaters and we have taken the source of life, the nurturance, and we've twisted it around into a death missile, right? We're keeping ourselves from our God, from our family, from our jobs, from our full potential. Uh, so we're gonna constantly have a tendency to, to go back to that. And you know that phrase I learned at the end of this last year, I love, I'm a grief-seeking missile. There is so much I still need to look at about incomplete mourning and living in grief instead of celebration. Yes, it has to do with friends dying and families in health and all the things that we're all full of tears about, all of us. Uh, you know, I have a Buddhist teacher here on this, on this meeting who I love very much. And uh, I remember being in a Buddhist monastery for a while on a silent retreat for a few weeks. And they gave you once, once a day, you could ask for a meeting with a monk if you wanted to. It was called San Zen. And uh, I had a meeting with this monk. And uh, she, uh, you know, she was living there, her head was shaved, the whole deal. And I said, I don't know what this is about, but, you know, I came here to feel better. I, you know, I don't want to be sitting in meditation and getting worse and worse and crying and blah, blah, blah. You know, I said, what's going on with this? And she said, you know, spiritually awakened people do not necessarily feel better. In fact, we often feel the world's pain more than others. What? That's the promise? I'm going to be more alive than the rest? God darn it. I don't want to. And uh, over the years, I've gradually accepted that, oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to be a super sensitive, aware human being. And I may cry more. You know, I, I just go to this thing. Um, while I was still in graduate training, I was being supervised by a psychiatrist and uh, uh, I was counseling a man whose wife had just gotten sober and that turned him into great depression because he could no longer do anything for her. She was running out with the AA ladies. She didn't need him and he was very depressed. And uh, anyway, he committed suicide and I, I'd never experienced that. And I am a great functional take care of business person. I'm the best person to have in an emergency. I help the family, boom, 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 the memorial, da, 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 da. And two months later, I was sitting in an OA meeting because I have a delayed reaction to pain and I started crying. And I shared about this man and what had happened months before. And after the meeting, a nurse, a woman came up to me after the meeting and she said, you know, I'm a nurse and, and we learned in graduate school that you should not get so involved with your patients. And I looked at her and I breathed very, very deeply. This is like 50 years ago. And I said, you know, I've examined all sides of that question. And I believe I want to do it this way. Do you understand? 
I am not going to avoid the pain of this life. I have a man in the next room, the love of my life, who's facing a surgery that uh, worries me. I'm here, I'm showing up, I'm not catastrophizing, I'm using every opportunity to love. Uh, someone gave me the quote last week, grief has Grief is love that has nowhere to go. And I thought, well, what if Henry does pass away? My great love. I still have great love. I, I have you guys. I have a lot of love to share. He's one of the many. And it's going to hurt. So... I hope that's not leaving you on a sad note at the end. I believe it's a happy note. It's a joyous note. I want to be alive. Okay, Alejandra, <laughs> follow that one. Hello. Hi. Hi, my name's Alejandra and I'm uh, I'm an, a compulsive overeater. I was going to say an alcoholic because I'm, you know, I've known you for a long time. I love and cherish you, and I feel you, and I admire you because you've uh, conquered that last frontier which I haven't, which is food. You know, food—it's been my problem ever since I've been 11. I started overeating when I was in my uh, puberty, and. Uh, and I've done everything, so many things. And I'm in AA and I've, you know, somehow been able to say no to alcohol, but overeating is my problem. You know, I know it and I've known it. See, see how long it's taken me to come here to one of these meetings, partly because of technology and I didn't know how to get there. But I know I've been in denial, you know, and there's one thing you said about the burning smell, you know, the, 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 I've been obsessing, you know, like the holidays uh, have been here for a while and they're, thank God, they're, they're going off, at least the, the Christmas and New Year's, which is where the big food, uh, the big binges, you know, are, are, are happening. And I have this little can of condensed milk in my condensed milk. I don't think there's anything more fattening than that. You know, and it's there. You know, I opened it yesterday and I told mom, I have a daughter who has the virtue of not overeating. She takes care. She's 13 and she, she's got it down pat. You know, I know she's not going to be fat. You know, being fat has defined my life, you know, and, and, and um, I, I just wanted to hear you. I didn't understand a lot of what you said because I'm new. This is my very first lecture in overeaters, I don't want to take too much time. I just wanted to let you know these things. You know, it's been, it's been. I've done the Scarsdale diet. I've done banana, bananas and milk for three days. What have I not done? You know, papaya, swallowing ten papaya seeds every morning, ridiculous. Now I'm about. I was about to do coffee and lemon juice, and then I'm like, get your butt into a meeting, Alejandra. That that's you know, I'm I'm in Central America for all of you and. There is anorexia and bulimia here, though it's quieter that people, and it's, it's in, diff, I don't know, 
I, I, we'd have to do some research about it, but uh, yeah, the pressure, the social pressure on being thin is a worldwide situation, especially now with those K-pop artists who are thinner than, than they look like Raymond. And with that, I'll just, you know, good. Thank you so much, Judy. I love you very much. You know, I thank you. And, I, and I'll send you the, about the bridge meetings. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alejandro. Been waiting. Here you are. <laughs> okay. And then another person I know from way over the other side of the ocean. Hi, Julie. Aloha, Judy. It was. Um... Uh, I'm sad to say I missed your workshop. I just got the message right when you ended this, and this is the end of the workshop. Oh, no. Um, but uh, I jumped on, and I'm glad to see you. Um, I, I would love to catch up with you next weekend. Um, but for this venue, I do have a question that uh, may help everybody else, too. I um, got started four years ago when you invited me to the birthday party and then three years ago i really jumped in or maybe it was five years ago three years ago i really jumped in so this anniversary party will be my three-year anniversary myself of really committing and diving in and um, just in time because last march i had open heart surgery and um it was because of clogged arteries because it's writing on the walls hereditary but i still ate whatever i wanted right um until three years ago and um what i'm what i'm dealing with now in the last nine months um not dealing with i've just it's been a really nice transition to eat foods that have no cholesterol and that's my food plan now and it's been very comfortable to do um, and I know it's because of all the program that I'm doing, all the meetings and service I've been committed to and, and fellowship and all of that's working. And the question is, how do I get past the regret? The regrets of, you know, how, how, how couldn't this, I, how could I have done, why couldn't I have done this sooner? And um i've known about oa for 30 years i've um <clears throat> and um i didn't have a solid fellowship on my island in maui to lean into um uh, and uh it has worked for me in the last three years because of the phone and the zoom um <clears throat> but um just uh yeah dealing with that and now i'm raising I've raised four children. I'm done raising four children. They're all they're all overweight, and so what? You know, that's the question of how I've like deal with that, and that I've passed that on to my kids. So, so I want to give you two responses, okay? Quickly, uh, is that okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, okay. And I do want to catch up with you. We have a lot in common, you die, you and I. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, um, you know, I debated if I was alcoholic for 13 years. I started working in drug addiction in 1967. I didn't get into AA until 1980. Uh, I was fixing my husband. I was teaching everybody else what to do. Uh, but moi, 
that I would be that vulnerable seeker asking the question. No, I'd rather go on some cockamamie uh, papaya diet or, or something I got out of a women's magazine. And uh, I want to share with you that I, I'm so grateful that, and I spoke at Roseanne's funeral about this. I was so grateful that I really got the message that when you get into those programs, you walk in, sit in the back of the room and shut up and listen. And on my uh, gratitude shrine out in the backyard, I have a big gold cup, not like this, but it's empty. It's an empty cup. And I want to come to these rooms emptied to learn something. And I'm now going to put it in that PowerPoint. You just reminded me of something because you are a beautiful sponsor and a beautiful 12-stepper and you've helped so many people. But maybe that has to be cut for a while because being in that role with that hat on keeps you invulnerable keeps you they're the seekers they're seeking from you and they're sucking off of you and isn't everybody happy yay 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 meantime you have to go under surgery and your kids are still eating that way so selfish program selfish program selfish program you know my my first sponsor who i had for 16 years she would periodically go on hiatus from sponsoring and when she would tell everybody, sorry, you'll need to find somebody else, talk to each other, no more phone calls. And she would call us when she felt like coming out again. And we survived. And I want to say that, you know, I should have put it in here. Don't be a guru in your other programs if you're trying to heal that still sick part of yourself. You cannot do it that way. It doesn't have, I am the perfect example. I became an addiction counselor. And look what happened to me. <laughs> I ended up with you guys. I'm grateful. So, uh, man, I could talk forever, but uh, I know it's time to go, I believe. So uh, thank you so much, everybody. Is that my, are you going to close the meeting for us? Wasn't that amazing? Amazing. Yes. Um, I'm glad. Judy, once again, thank you for your service. We are so grateful for all of you. Um, to graciously give the small rooms of the city your space, you know, and uh, we're really, really grateful for that. Mm. And I don't, you can't see us in the rooms, but we have some very beautiful faces here, too. And it's filled. The room is filled. <laughs> we haven't had that in a very long time. So thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. And um, everybody in the, the Zoom world, we are so grateful for you too. Um, I hope you guys exchange numbers. And you know, if you want to leave your numbers or whatever contact on chat, we can also connect that way too. So it is um, 201. Um, I want to close out with a serenity prayer and connect us in the rooms. We can all hold hands if you guys want. You know, because that's um, kind of my tradition. And then we'll go off and um, oh, we have an open question. Maybe. Oh, okay. <laughs> Come join us. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, God. God.
Thank you. 